reading is from John 1, 14 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here, and you've picked a great day uh, to be at Christ Community's downtown campus. And I know we don't always open like this, but I'm going to pray here before we start. I uh, picked up some kind of a bug. I don't know if it was at the movie theater uh, for Star Wars, right? Spoiler alert. I'm the last Jedi, uh, or whatever it would be, but I I got something in here. So I'm just going to pray before we start, and then we're going to dive in. So if you'd join me in prayer. Lord, this is a a fitting time maybe to start this way because I'm reminded this morning that, gosh, bodies can be so weak, can't they? Um, They can break down, they can get sick, and yet you entered one on our behalf. Uh, So I'm asking you now as we go through this sermon, would you be uh, with me? Give me kind of strength and a good voice through this one. Would you be with us? Is maybe it was easy to press the snooze button this morning and want a few extra minutes of sleep with the rain that came down. Uh, Direct our attention to what you want to say to us through this text this morning. Uh, We are all ears to what you have to say. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I, uh, I don't know about you, church, but I've been doing a whole lot of online shopping lately. Any online shoppers here? Uh, Christmas, if you didn't know, it's only eight days away, and I've got to be honest, it has really snuck up on me uh, this year. I had a lot going on this past month, and so even though my tree has been up and lit and decorated since like early to mid-November, uh, and even though I've been having like a small bowl of peppermint ice cream every night before bed <laughs> since then, uh, it is just now sinking in that Christmas time is here. And so I'm playing catch up in the gift giving department. I'm working my way through my list uh, really as fast as I can. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that all the boxes will arrive to my door on time. But if there's one thing I've noticed, uh, as I've been shopping around online, if there's one thing I've noticed I've been price comparing, if there's one thing I've noticed as I've, you know, scrolled the website at Macy's or scrolled at Amazon, uh, it's this. We live in a culture And we live in a time that worships the human body. Uh, We live in a culture, and I'd say we live in a time in history, right? So a culture meaning the United States currently, the the time meaning kind of this period in human history. We live in a culture and live in a time that worships the human body. Now, why do I say this? Well, it's because there are so many photos of bodies uh, that are used to sell us things. There's so many products for bodies uh, that people can buy. There's so much conversation about uh, bodies that it seems impossible for me at least to conclude otherwise that we live in a culture and we live in a time that worships the human body, that gives kind of focused attention to the body, that celebrates and praises the body, that regards the human body, right, as something uh, worthy of applause and worthy of adoration. That is the world in which we live. What you got to know is that it hasn't always been like this. 
Now, this level of admiration of and celebration of the human body is, isn't something that's always existed. In fact, for vast stretches of human history, uh, the body was looked upon uh, as something that was maybe like a necessary evil. The body was looked down upon. It was seen as this kind of vessel that helped humans make their way through the world, uh, but it was presented as like a broken vessel. I thought of maybe like an old Oldsmobile 98, right, that you could find on Craigslist today, uh, and it could get you where you need to go, but you're not going to arrive in style, right? The body was seen in a similar way. Uh, this is how the ancient Greeks understood the human body, and we know this through the writing of some of their philosophers, like Plato and Aristotle. Uh, they presented this view that came to be known as dualism. Now, trust me, this has a point, but I'm, we're going to do a little Greek philosophy together. So Aristotle, Plato, uh, they claim that the world could be divided into kind of two worlds. And so there's an invisible higher world, and there's like a visible lower world, right? And so in this invisible higher world, there's ideas, and there's concepts, and there's beauty, and there's pure form. And then in this visible lower world, there's things like bodies, right? There's physicality. And they said humans can interact with both worlds, right? Uh, but in their mindset, the, it was the mind and the soul of humans that interacted with this invisible world, right? Ideas, thoughts, beauty, concepts. And it was the body that mainly interacted in this lower visible world. Now, why does this matter? It's because there was a hierarchy in Greek thought. So this was the original like mind over matter kind of deal, right? So the mind, the soul, this was more important. The body, the flesh, that was devalued. The mind, the soul, the invisible part of the person, that's what really mattered in the Greek point of view. That's what was prized and honored and worshiped, again, the mind. While the body, one's physicality, it was seen as a hindrance or a burden. In fact, Plato once said that the body was like the tomb of the soul. Uh, it's where good things go to die, which is how I feel about my body sometimes, maybe after I have some spicy Thai food, right? Um, <laughs> but this view of the body, this Greek view of the body, this would have been the prevailing view when John wrote his gospel. And this isn't our view of the body isn't this kind of low view of the body. No, no, no. We live in a culture and we live in a time that worships the body. But ancients, they found it easy to look down on the body and it's easy to see why. They were regularly exposed to the body's weaknesses and limits. They saw bodies break and starve and get infections and die way more than we do. I mean, most of the bodies we see anymore, we've kind of scrubbed all the dirt off, right? The bodies we see in magazines or on TV, they've been tanned and cleaned and powdered and airbrushed, right? Every blemish removed, every, every wrinkle smoothed and injected. Uh, so many of us are so far removed from the realities of whether it's disease or death or deterioration as it relates to the body. Um, and then when we do encounter physical limitation, it feels like something that now, oh yeah, we can overcome with medical science, right? I mean, I was thinking of my own experience. Uh, my eyes don't work well, but I have a medical device that helps me see. Uh, my teeth came in all crooked, but they glued some metal to them and made them straight. Uh, I'm allergic to certain substances, but there's pills that I can take at different times of the year to help me function, right? We live in a culture and in a time that worships the human body, and we live in a culture in a certain time that can modify and enhance the human body, but that was not the culture or the time in which John wrote. And that was not the culture or the time in which Jesus entered the world. We live in a culture that worships the human body, but John lived in a culture that tolerated the human body, which is what makes this statement that he's, we're about to discover and look more into this morning absolutely astounding. I think it's what makes John's declaration here in John chapter 1, verse 14, so bold and remarkable because John writes the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And that, friends, would have stopped any ancient listener in her tracks. I mean, if you've been following along with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been studying the introduction to John's gospel. We've been looking at this ancient text for fresh inspiration and fresh guidance as we prepare for Christmas. And so we've titled this exploration, That You May Believe, right? That's been the series that we're in. And so we're looking kind of uh, point after point through what John said. And the reason we picked That You May Believe as a title is because John said that was his goal, right? In John 20, 31, he says that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John said, hey, I've written this whole testimony. I've written all this information about Jesus's life so that you may believe, so that you may come to see after you read and engage with everything that I've written, that Jesus is actually God, Christ, come to earth to save humanity. And so for the past few weeks, we've been studying this introduction. We've listened as John's described Jesus using two broad images and examples. Do you remember what they were? The very first week was the word. So John said, hey, the word uh, that was before, all in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, right? That's how it all opens up. And so a reminder, the word, it was another popular notion in Greek philosophy. Uh, The word was the term that Greek philosophers used to describe the underlying logic of the world. And so John opened up by saying, hey, you've all heard of the word. You all believe there's a logic behind the universe. Well, the word is actually Jesus Christ, right? He's the logic of the universe. The word is a person. That's what we said the first week. And then last week, We listened as John described Jesus as light. And as we said again, light and darkness, these are universal symbols of good and evil. And so John said, hey, you've heard of light and darkness. You've heard of right and wrong. Well, guess what? The true light uh, was a person, and his name was Jesus, and he's entered the world. So John opens his gospel by saying word, a concept everyone would have known, a concept that in the Greek perspective would have belonged to the mind, right? Belonged to that world above. He said, hey, Jesus is the word. And then he said, light, hey, light, another thing, you've heard of light, light, goodness, right, beauty, all that stuff that goes with light, light. Well, Jesus is the light. But then John turns things on its head. Then John gets even more explicit. And then John says in chapter 1, verse 14, which is where we're going to begin our study today, that the word, right, the logic of the universe, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says the Word came to earth. John says the Word became human. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this idea. He writes, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And this idea would have shocked John's listeners because the Word belongs to that invisible world. Right? The word is something that's too good to interact with humanity. The word isn't something that comes down here. The word belongs up there. And yet John says, no, 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 no. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The logic of the universe that created the universe became a human being. God became human. The creator became a creature. And this claim that John makes here, this sets Christianity apart. Because there are other worldviews and other faith perspectives that describe how the world was made. Christianity is not unique in that way. We have a unique account, but other worldviews take that into consideration. And there's other worldviews that assert that there's a problem with the world, right? We would say there's a problem with the world. We'd call it sin. But there's other worldviews that have that as an ingredient. And there's other worldviews that speak about how that problem might be overcome. But only Christianity says that the problem of the world has been overcome by the creator of the world entering the world. That is a uniquely Christian claim, and it's the claim John's making here. God became human. God 
put on flesh. But why? Right? Why would God do this? Why would the Word, this kind of pre-existing, the logic of the universe, this big glorious thing that belongs to the realm above, why would the Word become flesh? Well, John answers this question. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So let me break this down a bit. John, the author of this text that we're reading, says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could be able to see his glory as one who's unique, full of grace and truth. God became human, John says, and then, and then we could see that he was the same as us. We could see that, okay, he, he's human, but also that he wasn't quite the same as us. There was something special about him. He had this, this glory about him. He was full of grace and truth. John said it was just easy to see. We could see it. We were who around him. And then John, who wrote this text, says, I'm not the only one that could see it. There's another John, John the Baptist, right? And he saw it too. He bore witness to the fact that Jesus, he was the same of us. He was human just like we are. And yet there was still something special about him. That's why when John the Baptist encounters Jesus, he says, hey, hey, there's something special about you. You actually rank before me. Even though I've been in this lake or in this river before you even got here, you, you are, you're before me, you're ahead of me because you've been before all of this. John knew that something was special was, was in Jesus. John knew that Jesus had something eternal within him, this kind of glory, this kind of uniqueness. So the word became flesh, God became human, Jesus was born so that people could see him and could see that there's something special about him. People could see this unique combination of grace and truth, and it was appealing, and it was unmistakable, and it was something brand new. And I think this is a big lesson that John wants to teach to us this morning. Simply put, God became human so we could see him. God became human. God became flesh so we could see him. I mean, John makes this very clear in verse 18 where he writes, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. I mean, think about it. Before Jesus came, human beings had learned about God through his law, right? And human beings had learned about God through his remarkable acts. And these are great ways to learn about God. I mean, that's why we spend time as a church studying the Old Testament. We love these ways of learning about God. And Abraham learned about God from God's promises and Moses learned about God from God's power, right? Bringing the people out of Egypt. And Esther learned about God from God's favor. And Rahab learned about God from God's grace. And Job learned about God from God's healing and restoration. But now, for the first time in human history, humans had the opportunity to see God. Or to see God in the flesh. To see God in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, no one had ever seen God. Remember God's words to Moses in Exodus 33. Uh, God says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And that's true. I mean, God is so holy. There's something about us being in his presence we couldn't stand it. Yet at the same time, in the person of Jesus Christ, for the first time, humans could see God's face. I mean, Mary kissed that face, right? And so did Judas. And the Roman soldiers slapped and spit in that face. God put on flesh and we could see him. And that is remarkable. That's why John devotes the next 21 chapters of his gospel to describe what Jesus did 
while he was on earth because John wasn't just documenting the life of a human. He was describing the life of God himself on earth. In Jesus, John was describing God embodied. And this, again, is something remarkable in all of human history. God became flesh so we could see him, so we could know what he's like. I mean, one of my professors from Trinity put it this way, and I absolutely love it. He says, do you want to know what the character of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. You want to know if the forgiveness of God is like? You want to know that? Study Jesus. Do you want... Do you want to know if, what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus all the way to the wretched cross. Study Jesus, right? The point is this. God became flesh so we could see him. The word became flesh. The big idea, God came down to earth so that we could see him in flesh and blood. That's the first thing God wants to teach us, or John wants to teach us this morning. God became flesh so we could see him, and God became human so that we could know he sees us. So God became human so that we could see him, but God also became human so that we could know he sees us. The creator entered the world he created so that his creation could have confidence that he cares, so that we would know that he knows what it's like to live on earth. I mean, this is a scriptural theme that that we see rooted here in John, but it's fleshed out more fully in other books like Colossians and Philippians and Hebrews. And so we're going to spend a little time in the book of Hebrews here just to help flesh out this point a little further. Uh, Here's one example. I love this verse from the author of Hebrews. This is from Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. By that, this author means that Jesus, which he identifies as the high priest, right? Jesus, the one who intercedes and advocates on our behalf before God, He said, is not one who's unable to understand at an existential level the difficulty and the challenge of being a human. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. I mean, more specifically, the author goes on, he said, we do not have a high priest in heaven who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And this is taking it a step further. The author's saying, Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be bullied and tempted to revenge, right? He knows what it's like to be left out and tempted to despair. He knows what it's like to be wanting and tempted with greed. He knows what it's like to be lonely, to be sad, to be tired, to be hurt, and to be tempted with anger and worry and laziness. Jesus knows what it's like, the author says. We don't have a high priest who's unable to be sympathized, but rather we have one who's been tempted in every respect as we have been. Then he goes on, he says, so we do have this high priest who's not, they're not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Right, so Jesus In one sense, he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to live in our sin-stained world. He knows what it's like to be you and me, and yet he did it without sinning, which is what makes him ultimately a perfect sacrifice. But before we get to the sacrifice, which is where so many folks run when it comes to the incarnation, and you can read some Christian books that make it only seem as if the whole reason Jesus came and was incarnated was to just die that death, which is the main reason. But he also came to show us what God is like And he also came so that we would know that he cares, right? That's the key piece of the incarnation. That's critical. Jesus came to die as that perfect sacrifice. He's the one who was tempted in every respect yet without sin. But he also came to experience that temptation so that we could find comfort and confidence in approaching him. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to live in our sin-stained world. And that, friends, is remarkable. It shows me that God didn't just come to earth so that we can see him, though that's a big reason he came. But he also came to earth so that we could know that he sees us, so that we could know that he knows what it's like to live on earth. And this idea, the incarnation, it's at the center of our Christian faith. And I think few authors illustrate the beauty of the incarnation uh, and its significance. I can't think of many folks who do it better than an author, Philip Yancey. Uh, Yancey is a great author, a really great person to read. And he tells the story of a time when he lived in an apartment in downtown Chicago, and he maintained this tropical aquarium in his apartment. Right, so I'm just imagining him like living in the city, you got your tropical fish tank, right? And he writes about maintaining this tank, and he says, I spend much time and effort fighting off parasites and bacteria that invade the tank. I run a portable chemical laboratory to test the specific gravity, the nitrate and nitrate levels, and the ammonia content. I pump in vitamins and antibiotics and drugs and enough enzymes to make a rock grow. I mean, I fill through the water through glass fibers and charcoal and expose it to ultraviolet light. Uh, Yancey says, I spend so much effort to care for these tropical fish. I'm living in the heart of an urban environment where there's no salt water around naturally, but, I, but I've made this environment for these fish, and I put a lot of effort into sustaining it and making it perfect for them because I get so much joy out of seeing them lead their lives. And then he says, you would think, in view of all this energy expended on their behalf, that my fish would at least be grateful, uh, but not so. Every time my shadow appears above the tank, they dive for cover into the nearest shell. Three times a day, I open the lid and drop food in, yet they respond to each opening as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. Fish are not affirming pets. <laughs> He says, I, I made this whole environment, I care for them, I test the water, I, you know, I, all the light, the bacteria, I do everything it takes. You'd think the fish would be grateful, but gosh, I get over that tank, and they run, and they hide. And he continues, and I love this next part. He says, I often long for a way to communicate with those small brain water dwellers. Out of ignorance, they perceive me as a constant threat. I cannot convince them of my true concern. I am too large for them. My actions too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy they see as cruelty. My attempts at healing they view as destruction. To change their perceptions would require a form of incarnation. I would need to become a fish. Right? Yancey says, I would love to tell my fish that I'm on their side. I'd love for them to know that everything I'm doing, I'm doing for their good. I'd love for my fish to realize I've built this whole environment just for them and that I take great delight in maintaining it for them. But I can't. There's a difference in size. There's a difference in scope. They can't, they can't fathom what I'm doing, kind of this big human outside the tank. The only way, he says, they could grasp my care for them is if I were to become a fish. That's the only way I could adequately communicate myself to them. The only way I could let them know that where they lived and how they lived mattered to me is by becoming a fish. And friends, I think this is profound. God came to earth so we could see him, and God came to earth so that we could know he sees us. But what does that mean for us 
this morning. What does that mean for us in this final week before Christmas where, gosh, it's so easy to get caught up in all the preparations that need to be made and the last-minute things that need to be checked off, those lists, all that online shopping and gift wrapping and cookie baking and Hallmark movie watching that we can forget what's most important. What does this mean for us today? Well, to get a better glimpse of that, I'd love for us once more to go uh, to return to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4. We read verse 15 together, but verse 16 is fantastic. So I think this is a good application for us today. So let's remind ourselves. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 15, the author says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? God became flesh, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, right? God became flesh, but the perfect sacrifice. In him we see glory upon glory, right, as John puts it. Let us then, here's an application, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. See, the gospel of John, it outlines the reality that Jesus God became human. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that theme and applies it by saying, hey, you know what we can do in light of this fact? You know what we could do in light of the fact that in heaven now we have a perfect sinless advocate who died on our behalf, but who knows what it's like to be human. You know what that can grow in us? It can grow in us confidence that we can draw near to God's throne of grace in times of need to receive grace and mercy and help. Right? The author of Hebrews, echoing the apostle of John, says, look, Jesus knows what it's like. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, so we don't need to stay at an arm's length from God. Right? God came near to us. We don't need to keep our distance from him. So don't keep your distance from God. Don't think for one second, the author of Hebrews says, that God won't understand your problems, your temptations, that God won't understand the difficulties you face, that God doesn't have some kind of an imagination and a deep empathy rooted in his experience on earth to know what it's like to live your life with all the difficulties and complexities that come your way, right? All the different ways that you fall short, all the different ways that you feel weak. No, 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 the author of Hebrews says, you can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, knowing that your great high priest, Jesus Christ, lived in the flesh and can sympathize with your every weakness. No, instead, the author of Hebrews says, approach God's throne of grace with confidence and find what you need there. Right? If you need mercy because you're overwhelmed with guilt, uh, find it at the throne of grace. Right, if you need help because you're stuck in a mess that maybe you've created for yourself, that's fine. Find that help at the throne of grace, right? Approach God knowing that God's been here too, that he knows what it's like to live as a creature in his creation. God became human. And that changes everything. It removes the barriers that we might feel to approach God, who again, I mean, honestly, so often we can live as if we're still functional Greek dualists like God's up here and we're down here and there's no way we can ever access and we don't belong with God and God doesn't care about us. No, 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 no. The word became flesh. Jesus knows what it's like and we can approach God with confidence knowing that he cares and wants to give us help and mercy and grace in our time of need. And friends, we opened our time this morning by saying that we live in a culture and in a time that worships the human body and we do. But this Christmas, we have the opportunity instead to worship the God who took on a human body, right? the God who entered human culture and entered human time to help us to see God and to remind us that God sees us. That's the opportunity we have this Christmas. 
So let's worship that God together. Let's remember that we can approach him for grace. He knows what it's like. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, I know that many times I don't even believe that. It seems like news that's too good to be true. I feel distance there, Lord. I, I know that I can, my faith can be so weak. Lord, would you remind me and would you remind us that you came to earth so that we could see God? How amazing is that? How unique is that? Only in this faith, Lord, only you, God. Only you would give us such a vivid picture of what you look like by coming and taking on a body. That, that's a gift. And then if that weren't enough, you came and you took on flesh, you condescended, you limited yourself, you left heaven's throne room so that we would know that you know what it's like to live here, so that we could have confidence that you do indeed care about us, so that we could know that you're a God who doesn't keep us at an arm's length, but you're a God who's, who's lived it as well, who knows how difficult it can be uh, to thrive here in creation, but who wants to offer us grace and mercy and care in the midst of our lives. God, would you help us to let this reality of the incarnation sink into our hearts and grow in us confidence to approach you with any burden, any trial, any temptation that we might experience. Lord, this is good news today. May we treat it as such. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.